Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. It's been a little bit since we heard from you, either on here or on Ether Hour. We're sorry about that, but Christ is risen. This is, we're recording this after Pascha. This is our first recording, you know, since the glorious celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're glad to have you here at the end of April 2023. Dimitri, how was your Pascha? Truly is risen, Conrad. Uh, Easter, Pascha was amazing this year. Just a, a relief, you know, finally um, getting through the Lent, which was ex- exceptionally hard and not just like materially like fasting from food, but also I found like certain uh, emotional, demonic sort of spiritual attacks were also very much on the on the high end this year. So it was very challenging, but finally getting through it. And I'm sure many of our listeners, many of our supporters also probably felt the same. And we're in this great period of 40 days now leading up to Ascension and Pentecost after Easter when, you know, m- many churches are celebrating. It is very much this period of relief. And I think we're seeing the same sort of, at least a period of calm and stability, at least in world affairs. Things have kind of slowed down in a way. And we are in this autumn, you know, that the ground is still mushy. No one's really invading anyone full force. You know, no one's really forming any counteroffensives. Geopolitically, it is a time of, of peace and sort of, uh, you know, temporal prosperity. But of course, there are conflicts still occurring places around the world, which we'll discuss today. And uh, I think verbal comments are pretty uh, strong in certain areas, such as the Balkans, Africa. There's definitely a lot to discuss, but in anyhow, um, how's your Easter? How's your, uh, I guess, seven days, your bright week? Tell us about that, Conrad. Well, my Easter was glorious, of course, and fantastic, but I would be remiss not to tell the audience it went a little, I don't know about viral, but it got well around Twitter. People saw on my way to Pasca service at about 9.30 p.m., I was struck by a motorcyclist going over 120 miles per hour, causing my car to roll and flip across the highway. And I was, uh, my girlfriend and I, who was in the car, we were both fine for the most part. And the motorcyclist will also live, so be sure to keep him in your prayers, I guess. But it was a, as far as, you know, you talk about demonic attacks and everything, you know, I think this was, that maybe qualifies in some regard. I was only 20 minutes late to service, you know. Uh, we were able to get a ride and made it up there, so thank God. But yeah, no, it, it, it almost reminds me not to, I'm not going to compare myself to those being persecuted, but as far as those being kept from Paschal celebration, that was one of the things when it comes to Pascha being celebrated, we didn't, uh, we, well, rather we saw those wanting to go to the Holy Fire at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which we know descends every year when the Patriarch of Jerusalem enters Christ's tomb. The, the Israeli authorities tried to limit it to only 1,800 attendants. Uh, they were beating people up across, like blocks away from the temple to try to clear a zone where people wouldn't be allowed to go even close. It became there were some horrible sights of you know Christians, women, uh, monastics even being assaulted by by Israeli authorities, by you know Zionist police forces. Who you know we've seen a lot, we see it a lot more frequently in places like the Dome of the Rock, Al Aqsa Mosque up on the Temple Mount, but. When, when the Holy Sepulchre and the Holy Fire comes around, the, the authorities always make sure to put the boot down and make it known who really calls the shots in this area these days when it comes to the Christians there, which is unfortunate. But of course, the Holy Fire still descended. The cap was broken. Well over 1,800 people showed up. So take that, Israel. But we, we saw the glorious celebrations. The Holy Fire was spread to many Orthodox countries. It made it to Ukraine you know, very quickly, which, you know, I'm sure was a great relief to those Christians praying there. And 
you know, I always like to see the Holy Fire every year. I make sure I get the details and watch the live stream and everything. I'm sure you're the same way, Dimitri. 100%. I, I think this tradition of transferring the Holy Fire from Jerusalem to the various churches around the world uh, is actually very wholesome. And despite it being novel, it is a complete... It's a creation of the last 30 to 40 years. So essentially towards the end of the Soviet Union, I believe it was the Russian church that essentially started, maybe of course with the assistance of the Jerusalem Patriarchate, began um, kind of, uh, and I guess this this relates to the A for Hour episode we had, which we spoke about the Russian church's relation with the Jerusalem Patriarchate and the Russian mission in Jerusalem. But the Russians did, I guess, begin this tradition of transferring the Holy Fire to the various um, churches and monasteries around Russia. So essentially, you'll take the Holy Fire with you, light a candle or a lamp, and essentially transport it over plane, starting from the 1980s and 1990s. And this is a completely novel tradition in the church, but, you know, tradition of a small T, and... It's completely, it's it's wholly wholesome in a way. It is uh, very positive, and if anything, it only uh, seeks to you know spread Christ's glory and doesn't take anything away from the celebration itself. And it even the tradition itself even does have this like almost ancient feeling, as if it's been done before. But in fact, there's no real evidence that it ever has been. So of course we we support that, and it's great that the Holy Fire did reach places like the Kiev Pechersk Lavra and some of the other monasteries around Ukraine from the in the conflict zones, Svetogorsk Lavra etc it's it's of course amazing uh, a huge sort of boon in morale and hope for the people facing persecution uh speaking of you know persecutions uh, a fellow israeli uh the president of kiev is vladimir zelensky funnily enough actually presented a video about two a two minute long clip where he essentially pushes this militaristic poem onto the screen and in the background you have a green screen essentially and this is on easter eve so he says all right, Christ, so Zelensky says out loud, Christ is risen, truly is risen. I uh, hope Ukraine will, you know, stand up and fight back the Russians. And then he gives this little poem. And it's just bizarre seeing Zelensky stand there in a black, traditional Eastern European Ukrainian dress, essentially, uh, and essentially kind of uh, politicized and, you know, like kind of give this whole Paschal sort of message, a sort of very military-esque feeling and despite the fact that he's not even orthodox to begin with so uh a secular jew as he claims to be claiming you know stating christ is risen truly is risen is either hypocritical or uh very um subversive done in bad faith so that's what i'm kind of seeing here naturally uh of course him being in a black shirt with you know little ukrainian uh, heraldry on it and no crosses is also a big sign if anything it had two crossed swords i don't know if you saw that like two multiple images of crossed swords all over his shirt and of course the shirt was black which on easter we try to wear bright colors whites reds things of that nature in order to you know signify we, we try to appeal to the image of the angel who was like lightning and bright white sitting on the tomb of christ that the uh that mary magdalene and the bearers actually saw on the day so of course that i found very bizarre and peculiar of course very esoteric as well i think years down the line we'll be investigating clips such as this because it definitely has some sort of secret meaning from the groups that you know run business behind the scenes well, and we've got more to talk about as far as the persecutions at the Lavra goes. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show because, you know, the clips and the footage and what we see the people having to endure there, it just continues to increase and creep more and more towards full-on, you know, arrests for standing for the true faith. So we'll be sure to give you the scoop on all of that in a minute. But unless you have anything else you want to say about the Holy Fire, about Pascha, about that, Dimitri, we've got some big news coming out of the Balkans, where it seems that our favorite little fake country that could, Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
could be no more in its current form. We've seen some pretty strong language from Dodik, the head of Republika Srpska, which is the very large Serbian semi-autonomous region of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is it's it's well over a third of the territory of the country, most of the interior, and that does stretch all the way down in the south to the coast with a small border with even uh, southern Croatia. But it has always been, you know, at odds in some sense with the Muslim slash secular authorities in Sarajevo, you know, in the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I've been to here, actually. There's big signs, Welcome to Republika Srpska, with, like, Serbian flags on them and everything. And you notice the distinct lack of, like, you know, EU and, like, you know, the heraldry of the one of the organizations that these countries want to be a part of all goes away when you enter Srpska. But this is, of course, the most orthodox part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. This is where, obviously, the these most of these people here would eventually want to see themselves reconnected with mainland Serbia that they border on a lot of their a lot of their other side that doesn't border Bosnia itself. So this is big. He's made some pretty strong comments, Dimitri. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Milorad Dodik, I think he, he is giving off to his almost, I don't want to say Strelkov, but more like Pavel Gubarov, like the uh, unannounced sort of unofficial governor of Novorossiya when the Donbass rebellion first began. He is giving this vibe, at least uh, in terms of international relations, to the to the leaders of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and the international community, stating that we, the people of Respublika Srpska, which, as you said, is an administrative body, it essentially represents the one-third of the majority Serbian population which lives in Bosnia, and unfortunately were, you know, um, administratively kind of disconnected from the mainland Serbian uh, from mainland Serbia because of NATO intervention that occurred in the in the mid nineties, but essentially Dodik says that look, we won't be obeying the Bosnian and Herzegovina uh, laws essentially, and you know he's he stated this multiple times throughout March, April, all of twenty twenty three. He's made pro Russian comments firstly, which was also great. He's made anti shall we say anti alphabet folk comments as well, saying that we won't be welcoming these values, and now he's of course stating that. Uh, just openly kind of prospectively into the future saying that Respublika Srpska and the one third of Bosnia will become an independent state similar to I suppose the Donetsk and Lugansk republics in Ukraine I I mean that's the primary analogy I'm seeing here and I guess another funny link is of course well probably not funny for the people involved but during that during those Bosnian uh, Kosovo conflicts in the 90s and uh, you know ending in 1995 the Republic of Serbian Kraina which Notice what that sounds like, right? Ukraine, Ukraine. Essentially, it means the Serbian borderlands, which is another zone located in Croatia. It was the, it wasn't a proper administrative body, but it existed similar to Respublika Srpska. But unlike in Bosnia, it existed in Croatia. It was this unannounced state, which of course the Croatian authorities later dissolved. But still, notice the very similar kind of dispositions of Serbians actually wishing to unite despite international treaties despite artificial borders despite international of course interventions onto their land and you know some counteractions by locals who really dislike the unity of the serbian people and again the, the flags of uh, you know respublika srpska like and the flag of serbia speaks for itself it's essentially a uh, red stripe blue stripe white stripe which you know very similar to the russian flag which is white stripe blue stripe red stripe essentially 
almost almost the same very similar to the russian flag very much in that tradition of eastern europe i think it's great and quite lovely and i completely support dodik's comments i think it's uh refreshing to see a bosnian politician or a bosnian serb politician kind of giving his opinion especially given um vucic's recent or at least you know in the past four months vucic has been very light so it's good seeing a serbian leader actually stand up and speak his mind openly just to get a how serious this is, this isn't just us blowing smoke and, you know, hoping something interesting happens. He says, Republika Srpska will become an independent state because in Bosnia and Herzegovina, we are unable to be part of regional initi- initiatives that could be useful to us. And he goes on to just eviscerate, you know, certain leaders in Bosnia and Herzegovina that he feels are anti-Serbian. He, you know, of course, in, in, in Republika Srpska, they've been even more openly pro-Russian than even Vucic has, who he, of course, has had to be towing this line. He's a prospective EU member state. That's at least his perspective and his position as a as a government official. He has been trying to lead Serbia into these institutions, maybe not necessarily NATO, but definitely the European Union. You know, he may have made, actually, he's very recently made some comments. He said that he seems to be reneging on some of his agreements and promises he made on signing the Kosovo independence agreement and is doubling down more on the rhetoric of, you know, Kosovo is Serbia, which of course has been the Serb position up until extremely recently than that, when that EU deal came that was supposedly going to allow for Serb municipalities in the north of Kosovo. But that of course has gotten very controversial. It seems that that may not be happening and that because of that, Vucic now feels strong enough to be like, nope, we're back to the status quo. Kosovo is Serbia. And Especially also Ukraine uh, voted to basically abstained on a vote about recognizing Kosovo. And so basically hinted that they may be recognizing Kosovo in the future, which gives Serbia even less of a reason to not openly support Russia and the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic and Kherson and Zaporozhye joining Russia. Because for those who don't know, Serbia is pretty staunch across the board, internationally speaking, as far as its foreign relations go, on not supporting separatism from any UN nation because they want to screw up support for Kosovo and want to have for their claim on Kosovo and not have have the least amount of states possible recognize Kosovo as an independent country. That's why Spain is such a close ally with Serbia because they both because Serbia strongly supports Spain in cracking down on Catalan and Basque separatists and thus Spain staunchly supports Serbia retaking and recognizing all of Kosovo as its own. So Thus, Serbia is not wasn't necessarily going to immediately be like, oh yes, Donetsk, Luhansk, these are Russia now. But if Ukraine isn't going to even support Kosovo and Serbia, then Serbia may feel emboldened to actually make its case. Like, no, these are different situations. These are Russian people. Kosovo is the you know these aren't analogous situations. There's a legitimate reason for someone to want to reunify with an older state that is more of an ancient civilization as opposed to a new, more fabricated fabricated Westphalian project, but then to also say that that same Westphalian fake country project shouldn't then be done to an older civilization state, which is exactly what happened in the case of Serbia, Kosovo, and Montenegro, of course, which we've discussed on the show before. Yeah, and of course, it does. It didn't really stop the international community from coming in and separating Kosovo in favor of the Albanian population living there, separating it from Serbia, despite the fact that 
Kosovo in many ways is the Ukraine equivalent of Serbia. It is the heartland of Serbia. It is where most of the holy sites are. Most of the ancient leaders of Serbia were in some way related to Kosovo, born there, ruled there. It's where all the monasteries are. And of course, a lot of those monasteries are currently uh, in, in great disarray and not really being managed properly just because of the difficulty kind of accessing them and yeah, just the administrative relations over there. It's 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 very hard. And I, I do understand Vucic's uh, kind of back and forth. He does need to retain that legitimacy amongst the international community to get the most out of the international community's sort of stances on for Serbia. And notice, yes, as you said, separatist tendencies are not essentially welcome in a lot of countries, even a country like Russia, which is weird because you'd say that, hey, Russia was supporting separatism in Ukraine, but it's more more like Russia supporting a sort of unionism. Uh, of uniting those people who were, I guess, formerly Russian back with Russia, for example. You know, that's kind of being promoted in eastern Ukraine. It has been being promoted for eight years. Whereas countries like China, for example, of course, are anti anything separating from the greater Chinese People's Republic. You know, we're looking at the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong. China is also procuring this, I guess, position of this international position of, okay, we're looking to reunite the great Chinese nation and all these disparate areas and territories under one sort of body. So there is this balance. And of course, you do have the you know Republic of Ichkeria or whatever existed during the Chechen Wars in the 90s in the Northern Caucasus, where the Chechen, the, the majority, I guess, uh, well, at least the leadership of the Chechen Republic at the time wished to separate from the early Russian Federation. And it began these really horrible wars, which of course necessitated Russian intervention in the region but nevertheless these positions of Serbia are completely understandable it's just more or less a balance because nothing is really changing in terms of no one's really coming to save Serbia from its predicament currently like no one's in, in, having a military intervention in fact we're seeing Serbians from Serbian Croatia and Croatia from the Republic of Serbska in Bosnia from actual Serbia proper and from Kosovo even Kosovo veterans going to eastern Ukraine in order to support uh, I guess the future rise of the Russian Empire and the I guess the Orthodox supernation that's being born there essentially they're saying they're seeking and we you know we saw these Serbian mil- former military uh, personnel as well as uh, mercenaries essentially just volunteers aiding to fight, aiding the russians aiding the people of the donbass in order to fight back the forces of the west because they feel like that's the current frontier and possibly if russia is victorious in that particular area this could also translate into you know the area you know the territory of yugoslavia and you know in, in the end benefit them as well so i think that's the thought behind serbia at the moment it's kind of like okay well, let's wait until russia gets up gets up off its knees, and then we'll kind of progress with something more, uh, something more concrete here. And Dodik as well, he's just keeping the fly, he's just keeping the fire alight, so to speak, with all these, pe- with all this powerful rhetoric, which is making, uh, you know, which is making people like s- such as you know some of the EU representatives, the you know, Schmidt, for example, very nervous on the particular issue. So I think I think generally it's a positive trend among Serbs. Or you make a good point, Dodik, keeping the fire alive. I think, you know, we've called Vucic the cuck of Kosovo before. Dodik would know better than anybody that he wants to be an EU member. I doubt Dodik necessarily shares that same perspective being part of Bosnia, which is a total, you know, EU project. You know, the entire authority still, ultimately the country still reports to handlers in Britain and the US, even in a formal sense. So it's really a... It's this little jug. I've, I've, you know, I've driven through this country. I got my passport stamped with Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it's pretty funny if that if this country stops existing soon, I'll have a stamp of this little thing that only existed for like I don't know what like thirty years or something like that, which I think is funny. But you say that Dodik, this may even have been him realizing that 
Serb opinion and feeling and nationalism itself is actually outpacing the Eurocrat vision of Vucic. And he may have been like, you know, I think I need to push this myself. I think I have the support. And I think what signaled him that support was the Montenegro election, where Serbs have shown that they couldn't, they didn't just get Dukanovic out of a, you know, out of absolute power and have to reform a coalition the first time they were able to come back again. So we think he realizes that they're, you know, this attitude is kind of, they're, they're in it for the long haul. But, and I think even Vucic then had to realize this, especially when he, he may have thought the Kosovo deal was going to go through in a way he thought, but they, they came in with some backhandedness to the negotiating table as of course they would, and he should have expected. But even he called, I believe, for some of these local elections to be boycotted in the Northern part of Serbia, where, the people there, the local Serbs who make up the majority, were not going to be guaranteed the autonomy that they needed. And as far as what I'm reading right now, four Albanian mayors were elected in Kosovo Serb cities because the Serbs boycotted it. And the report says only 0.029% of the registered Serb voters in North Kosovo voted in the elections. So pretty successful boycott. Obviously, these mayors aren't going to have any legitimacy in the eyes of the local Serbs there, and that's only going to exacerbate the likelihood of another. We saw those checkpoint crises a few months back that had to do with license plates and passports and identification cards. Now, all those people in those towns are supposedly, in the eyes of the local government there, ruled over by Albanians that none of them uh, voted for or even recognized as legitimate candidates because they boycotted the election. So... There could be more clashes there. We're going to be watching that pray, of course, for the local Orthodox there and the sites and everything that we don't see a repeat of what happened in the 90s with the Albanian invasions. But we're going to be watching it closely, of course, Serbia, Russia, one of the most ancient, one of the most ancient, you know, Slavic Orthodox alliances. And you're right, this all also has to do with, you know, the destruction of Serbia being in, into with the use of these this Westphalian idea of these nation states where these identities are propped up locally and then secession is supported and then you have Montenegro and Kosovo and even in a way after Yugoslavia you have Croatia and Bosnia and look I'm just going to be honest sorry for those listening that are of these other groups I know we've got a diverse audience but look the the region is for Serbs it's for see, south it's for Christian South Slavs that live north of Greeks and Greece. And just because a bunch of them converted to Catholicism and Islam and then became Croatian, that doesn't mean that so, so now we just have to be multicultural again. Like, this is, like come on, we need to ret- return to orthodoxy, accept the truth, and then, you know, then, then we can have some peace in this region that everybody likes to blame the Serbs for, the, for all of the issues when it's, you know, it's actually quite the opposite if we know how the arc of world history tends to go. But... Unless you have anything else you want to say about the Balkans and and the region, I think we need to move on to talking about Sudan. Well, yeah, I think before we move on to Sudan, just so our audience understands and those listeners notice that throughout every episode, we do mention religion and culture very much. So it's it's not even about allegiance to political party, but unity in religion, unity in culture matters a lot more for for essentially for national sovereignty for national unity and we notice that as soon as religion falls in a country such as ukraine you have all these various neo-pagan cults come up you have these various battalions who claim to be a neo-nazi but essentially they're just make-believe artificial creations worshiping the demonic entities you have uh, you know events such as the yugoslavian war of course prop up when there are various i guess imported religions 
of course, promoted amongst this ancient Orthodox people. And uh, even in countries like Ethiopia, which we discussed with Jim Jatras last year on one of our early episodes, um, Ethiopia, of course, the religious differences between some of the groups have exacerbated a huge war and conflict, which uh, in Sudan, what we'll discuss now is, of course, just the, the lack of of, I guess, concrete religion in the region. Of course, Islam being dominant, but also just the um, the disconnection between, uh, you know, the Islamic Sudanese are really not really helped, held in high respect in, in the Muslim world, similar to how Northern Caucasus peoples and Chechens and Dagestanis are really seen as the rejects of the Muslim world in many cases. And I, I don't mean to be facetious, and I don't mean to generalize here, but that's, throughout history, that's how they were viewed including the or the muslim tatars as well so people on the fringes of a certain religious at least in islamic terms they are viewed as these uh weird converts or you know sometimes people joke about orthodox converts but in many cases that doesn't really apply to orthodoxy but it definitely applies to islam in in places such as africa and i think we'll be now that we're going to be discussing sudan which was the big story of the fortnight uh, it will certainly come to light, just the amount of distress and turmoil caused by a nation in this unity. And now I know, you know, we assume a lot of our audience here at World War Now, I think a base level of knowledge about certain religious, geographical, geopolitical realities and everything. And, you know, maybe we don't explain everything as much as we should, but, and this is probably going to sound silly to some people, but Sudan, it's a country in Africa in the north eastern region of Africa. Just, just in the few people that may not know exactly where Sudan is, you're not left in the dark, right? It's, it's south of Egypt, north of Ethiopia, so it's like the majority of the Nile River actually ends up running through Sudan in a lot of ways. And it has to, and they have, Sudan borders some of the most countries of any country in the world, actually, based on how it lies in Africa. So it has so many border disputes. In fact, the newest country in the world still, as far as recognition internationally is South Sudan, which used to be, you know, connected to the rest of Sudan, but in 2011 became its own country. And it seems now that the rest of Sudan is still basically too big for, you know, these people to kind of adequately govern and hold together because there's some intense factionalism going on. So to break it all down, it's all getting wrapped up into the US-Russia soft power debate and everything. But basically, there's two clashing groups in Sudan, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the RSF, which is a paramilitary, the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary group that's been assisting the government in many ways, led by some of the top military commanders of Sudan to, you know, fight rebels. I mean, Sudan has been a perpetual state of civil war, you know, from 2011 after the whole South Sudan thing on the borders. And then since 2019, there's been this like international transition council to eventually get to being a functioning democracy, as they like to say. So this is barely a functional country is what we're telling you. And basically now the RSF is rapidly taking forces from the SAF. And the U.S. is basically spreading rumors that Russia is supporting the RSF. And this is something they need support from Russian intervention, kind of sowing this narrative. And of course, all the countries surrounding Sudan, whether it's Libya, Egypt, Central African Republic, Chad, are crawling with, with Wagner, who are helping a lot of these countries fight terrorists, are operating on all sorts of contracts with other African governments in the area. So it's an easy target to blame. Haftar in Libya, who is, you know, the country split in half with half of being ruled by a pro-Russian warlord, the other half by a Turkish-funded warlord. He's being accused of directly funding the RSF. But all this is kind of backwards because the, the leader of the SAF, he, you know, is the de facto leader of all of Sudan. He 
has pledged, and all of Sudan has pledged, in February they confirmed it, that they are going to go forward with a large Russian naval base on the Red Sea, which is going to be close to large Chinese and American bases in Djibouti, which is just not just south of the Sudanese coast on the Red Sea. And so Andrew, Andrew Karibko has expounded on a lot of this pretty well, but the idea that Russia would suddenly want to come in and completely overthrow the government or whatever and overthrow this guy in Sudan is a bit ridiculous. And the U.S., I think, is using it as a pretext to get on in there and then ultimately prevent the military base from ever happening. Uh, I'm sure you agree with some of that, Dimitri, but you may also have... What, what, what are you thinking? At least from from what I saw, of, of course, multiple areas of analysis, Western sources as well, as well as some Russian sources and Ukrainian sources, it's definitely quite clear to me that the Russian, the, the Russian and Chinese position at the moment is for a stable Sudan. So a Sudan where the RSF and the Sudanese army cooperate. So, the, so essentially the RSF, the Russians are describing as the Sudanese version of the Spetsnaz. So the very Wagner-like military um, militia, which is very highly specialized and it has over 100,000 troops. So it's like a larger version of Wagner, which a lot of these people are war veterans. Like there's been so many coups in Sudan. Like I think people really don't appreciate how unstable this country is, unfortunately, for the Sudanese people. Like, their GDP is very low. The country is incredibly poor. One of the main issues in Sudan is, you know, of course, supply, trade, and we'll discuss this a bit later on in regards to the World Health Organization. But Sudan is a country where military coups are very common. I think this would be the potential 16th military coup in the last 70 or so years which has occurred in Sudan. So that's almost one per decade. No, that's almost two per decade at this point. So very, very unstable. And so the Russians are viewing this as an attempt to disrupt Russian international relations with Sudan because Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, actually did visit Sudan about one to two weeks ago. Uh, and Lavrov did visit Sudan. And in fact, he said the visit was very fruitful. Russian trade in Sudan at the moment is limited to majority uh, gold mining and gold exports. So Russians are purchasing Sudanese gold and actually exporting it across the Red Sea in the in the north uh, in the northeastern side of the country. A lot of this is related to the Wagner mercenary group, which actually protects the various gold mines. So Russians are helping the Sudanese actually produce some of these minerals from these very unstable areas in the country, actually protecting the industry. They're protecting the mining industry, and of course, uh, uh, benefiting from it because they're actually purchasing that those gold assets and sending them to Russia via the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So very interestingly, but the Sudanese kind of geographical position being adjacent to the Red Sea, the Red sea controlling some of that coastland and Russia being interested in that is, I think, um, obviously what's trying to be disrupted here. Now, as I said, Russian trade in Sudan is not very... Um, it's very much in its developmental stage, but a country which has really intense trade in Sudan, which with over $30 billion invested, American dollars, is China. China's investments are very much spread out throughout the entire country we're talking infrastructure private investments uh, mostly large businesses healthcare etc and the chinese are very much neg- viewing this particular civil conflict as a negative because china and russia do want a stable sudan they do not want these two military super forces in the country itself the rsf and the sudanese army actually fighting one another and it comes to, I guess, the question arises, well, if Russia is causing these, you know, uh, hypothetically, if Russia is causing this conflict, what exactly is that like, for Russia to, how does Russia benefit from it? If Lavrov visits two weeks ago, says the talks went well, and then suddenly this conflict arises, clearly 
it doesn't benefit Russia. I, th I think on paper, at least, it doesn't benefit Russia nor China, but it does benefit the US, which is trying to reduce Russia's growing influence in Africa. I think, Conrad, you mentioned Russian forces, you know, all being involved in Libya, in the Central African Republic, which is probably the more peaceful neighbor of Sudan. The Central African Republic lies to the south to the southwest of Sudan. And in, in fact, it's funny because the Wagner mercenary group currently, of course, winning the battle in Bakhmut has at least a thousand troops stationed in the Central African Republic, protecting primarily the president being his private security forces. So I guess the top security force in the Central African Republic is a Russian mercenary group, which is interesting. Hopefully, as this conflict develops in Sudan and kind of comes to a you know, normalized resolution, we will see a, a, a higher presence of both Chinese and Russian peacekeepers, as well as, you know, a military presence in Sudan in order to keep American, or maybe, shall I say, Western, you know, NATO influences kind of at bay. But yeah, this, this conflict is uh, very much a destabilizing force for the actors and the heroes of multipolarity. It is a bad thing, you know, for, for those particular sides. Well, when it comes to all these countries, it's funny that you say the most peaceful country, Central African Republic, countries that basically always at a low level insurgent conflict. I don't think, and I don't think when it comes to most of these extremely landlocked Central African countries, I don't think the central governments have ever obtained operational control over the full land mass of the country at any point in their post-colonial existence, which shows you, you know, the success of independent rule. And again, all these countries are part of former French colonial West Africa, Belgian. Uh, colonies within Central Africa, and therefore, before very recently, when China started their Belt and Road initiatives and Russia started its foreign policy initiatives to build the multipolar world, the, the most influential countries in regards to these natural resources that are in these countries, the diplomacy that comes with you know having so many UN countries in this continent that can you know support you at international functions, these were all still dominated by the former colonial powers, and I'm making no comment on. You know the, the the justification for colonialism as of now most of these countries don't seem to have proven they are able to function outside of you know colonial rule but finally these countries are now able to interact with you know profitable successful countries abroad that aren't their former colonial rulers in this case you know france has been driven out of burkina faso mali uh, almost there, there, there's rumors that Niger is going to move soon for against them. Chad as well. For, you know, France has been the main force here and has been the main one maintaining kind of their former empire with even military forces in the cases of some of these regions where there's Boko Haram, ISIS proxies and whatnot. So they've all been driven out by, by Wagner. And as Dimitri said, Wagner has been pretty successful in earning the trust of these, of these leaders, maintaining those that they like in power and then aiding in certain popular uprisings and coups that take out pro-Western puppets in certain countries. We saw that, I believe, in Mali. So this is a big thing, you know, World War Africa. And, you know, you talk about the heroes of multipolarity, Dimitri. I, I recently saw the Super Mario Brothers movie in theaters, which was, it was good. You know, it was mostly, mostly for children, I, I, of course. It wasn't you know, it, it, but it was good. It was entertaining. And I kind of, I couldn't help but notice just if you think about what happened in the movie, sorry for the spoilers if anyone doesn't know, but so in the movie, the Mushroom Kingdom with Mario and Peach have to go and seek favor from the Kong Kingdom, the Jungle Kingdom with Cranky Kong and Donkey Kong. And then Mario has to fight Kong, and they get the Kong army to fight against you know, the, the Koopa Kingdom and Bowser, who have just taken over, like, the Ice Penguin Kingdom, and they're trying to homogenize, you know, all the kingdoms into their 
dark, sad underworld, you know, Bowser would marry Peach and everything. But it really seemed to me that, you know, the Mushroom Kingdom really does represent Russia in the, in the, in the, in that way. And the Kong Kingdom represented China with Russia going to ask, you know, China for its, for its broader assistance. And we see this playing out where all of Russia's proxies, you know, they have that Chinese backstop as well with that help, that infrastructure assistance, that capital assistance, you know, China has been really fine. Apparently they've been buying oil from Saudi Arabia with gold. And I think they're able, they've been able to even shore up more of their gold reserves because of their relations with Sudan. And even in these mines and places that are protected now by Wagner forces. So we're really seeing how, the system, the multipolar world, as it were, is kind of working effectively, you know, to maintain this economy, to maintain international relations, to maintain stability against, you know, the forces of darkness, the forces of Zog, the forces of the West trying to hold on to their former globalized total full spectrum dominance. Completely right. I'm always a big fan and a supporter of making um, references to popular, at least, uh, popular concepts at least in the in the mass media sphere movies do they video games things like that things that people can relate to on a general level things that you know people not reading political articles 24 7 i think it's super important to kind of drive that idea to the audience because that's what that's what people did back in the ancient world notice how all the history books have direct references except uh, i guess if you're reading thucydides which is like the only work uh, which is very clinical, but most of most references are strictly most references regarding history, politics. They always influ are influenced by the mythological. So I think that's just how stories are related. And in many ways, that's part of the uh, that's in many ways how Christ tried to send these real messages via parables to the apostles and those listening to him during his time here on earth as well. I think it's just just how people recognize information, and uh, it does help kind of process these very difficult concepts. Um, which, you know, we humans simply, there's just too much data to process on, on our own, frankly, um, just with our normal cognitive abilities. We're not all in school here. We're not all constantly learning eternal students, etc. But one thing I did want to mention was just on the Sudan factor, people like really appreciate exactly how poor Sudan is. And I'm not here banging Sudan saying that, hey, look, it's like a, a very poor third world country. It's a, it's a really bad place. No, no, it's 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 poor and this leads to it being influenced of course by foreign actors it's not i'm sure the sudanese people don't want to be dependent on either us russia or china but it's simply there is no alternative total in, uh, international investment in sudan roughly equates to about 60 billion us dollars right 60 billion dollars you'd think well that's a quite a small number considering i mean uh, the amount of aid the world has provided Ukraine, which is closing in, I think, at around $200 billion, probably in total, which is insane. So that's four times the total investment of any country, you know, the entire world in Sudan. And Sudan's federal budget, at least on an annual, its annual budget, is just, I mean, I would say close to about $4 billion. So you can see the difference there. So international, the international community very much roots investments, China, Chinese investments being the majority of them. Um, there is no concrete numbers but i'm guessing china has at least 30 billion out of the 60 invested in sudan the rest of it of course is spread out amongst its neighbors some other international countries india for example and russia but it, it does kind of paint a picture of just just how bad the supply and monetary situation in sudan is and how civil wars like this really exacerbate any 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 already existing issues for example with medical supplies which i think that's one of the latest stories on the sudanese conflict is exactly the 
um, the biochemical labs, one, and two, just the, the, the fact that the hospitals are closing down due to a lack of medical supplies. We're talking basic drugs used for anesthetics, antibiotics, just things not arriving at the hospitals in the mornings at the start of the week, shipments simply not getting delivered. And so you have people, of course, getting sick, people becoming ill. Frankly, the pandemic is over, so you know we're not going to talk about shipments of vaccines anymore. That's kind of you know done and dusted. But actual medicines, which do work, are not arriving at these various hospitals. And we're talking about a country which probably doesn't have the best rates of you know uh, STD health, things like that. Um, people actually do need this medical aid very quickly, and uh, you know it, it is located in a very uh, kind of a rough area, frankly. So if people are getting hurt, people are getting shot at. You, they do need medical assistance pretty quickly, and just the fact that the medical supplies are not arriving. Sixty percent of the hospitals are experiencing shortages in Sudan right now. And on top of that, that's one part of the story. The second part, of course, Connor, I think you can expand. Just the, the biochemical labs allegedly have been raided by one of the sides and certain uh, disease, you know, uh, disease capsules were uh, captured by one of these uh, forces. So we have chemical labs similar to Ukraine uh, being, you know, being raided. Uh, again, it's brings thoughts of maybe potentially another pandemic coming out of Africa or some sort of disease evolution, just weird uh, biochemical warfare. Well, to give kind of just what's going on on the ground, just so everyone's clear, so the head of the of the, of the Sudanese armed forces, the actual, you know, recognized head of Sudan, I guess, is Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. And then a lieutenant general, a very popular military leader, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, who goes by the nickname Hemeti. He's the head of the RSF, which are the uh, the, the the paramilitary group that the rapid support forces that are you know vying for power and they've supposedly controlled large portions of the capital city of Khartoum and very recently they've taken some big oil refineries they're they're taking critical infrastructure and they're making sure that they've got a strategy I guess as best they can to try to get the SAF to eventually surrender but Again, as far as Russian involvement, they I think their best interest is they just want to see peace so they can get their naval base built. And it seems the U.S. actually may have something directly to benefit from conflict being maintained. But when it comes to that biolab stuff, you basically kind of said everything that we, we mostly know as of now. But with Sudan, there's, I believe, I saw something about there's apparently a cave there where apparently Ebola originated and another virus. So this has been a place where the the U.S. and the WHO and these places have really kind of designated and made sure everybody knows oh this is where you know diseases come from so you know I, we'll, we'll be sure to keep our eye on you know on, on on the powers that be that want that want are going to be letting us know about the next virus coming out and whether or not maybe it's coming out of out of sudan but no it does seem that again the 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 rapid support forces are taking a decent amount of territory to the point where a lot of places are evacuating their embassies, they're evacuating their populations. And we know that there are 16,000 U.S. citizens in Sudan. And as I told Dimitri off stream, I have a strong feeling that the vast majority of those are not, you know, jungle canoe, you know, Christian missionaries going and doing the work of the Lord. I think most of those are embassy adjacent because I believe the U.S. has one of those huge kind of military base style embassies where there's you know a lot of employees people a lot of people living there full-time kind of a whole center of operations to make sure that sudan ends up where the u.s wants sudan to end up and you know we see that in a lot of other places you know iraq had the massive well has the massive u.s embassy and base and everything we've seen you know some of these places get turned get more are more we saw libya 
the Libyan embassy, of course, get raided. It wasn't quite as kitted out like some of these other ones are. Maybe if it was, what what happened wouldn't have been able to happen. But hey, we know uh, the U.S. kind of orchestrated that one too. So the whole Africa thing is very, it's really where a lot of this stuff is going to get played out because it's already in a state of chaos and violence. So of course, when the rest of the world's getting thrown into it and things are going hot, the places that are already just, you know, a bit a bit warm to the touch are going to start to flare up first. So we see Ethiopia on the border. Apparently there have been incursions from Ethiopia into Sudan, Sudan into Ethiopia. You know, the war there was finally, I believe, starting to die down. And now we see Egypt, apparently, I believe, supporting the SAF and the main forces in Sudan because I think they want stability because they don't want Sudan to mess up what they already have is messed up with the Nile because Ethiopia is going to, I believe, rapidly start filling up their reservoirs and quickly dam the Nile that could have disastrous effects on the water supply for Egypt who relies on the flow from the Nile that originates in Ethiopia. So they certainly don't need Sudan also falling into chaos and maybe messing with their water supply too. Yeah, I think generally speaking, the conflict will need to be watched. It could, it's still in its early escalation process. So um, exactly what it will, you know, what will occur. And frankly, we're not even aware of exactly how it began. It seems to have been almost a personal, uh, a personal sort of, you know, some sort of tension between the two leaders, between the two organizations. When you have two powerful military forces in one area, and, and obviously they have different leadership structures, they don't really relate. They probably don't even trade information across, across uh, you know, management lines. There, There is always a risk that, you know, frankly, uh, something may occur, some sort of you know, skirmish. But this now, well, more than 500 people have died from this in the last two weeks. So we can say for sure it's definitely getting into that civil civil conflict, uh, proper proper civil war type territory. And we're just, we're just wondering how we can uh, kind of give you guys a quick assessment because there's so many different potential point of views online. It is very hard to kind of parse through the information. And I guess we'll just see moving on uh, weeks from now exactly how... The conflict will play out. It it is uh and, you know the reason why it matters is because Sudan of course is a key area in in many ways even more even better positioned geographically geographically than Ethiopia which we discussed last year. And Ethiopia being like a very key Christian country in Africa. Sudan of course just the the implications of Sudan being of course an unstable zone even more so than it has been now will lead to you know negative forces in the world using it against stability in africa so i think that's worth bringing up but generally speaking um uh that's pretty much been the news in africa at the moment now <laughs> some of the big news from europe eastern europe in particular where putin has made and another official visit in six in the last six months his visit has visited ukraine once or at least the russian territory of ukraine and finally he's visited again around easter he visited the oblast of kherson meeting up with the military leadership there and he visited the lugansk people's republic uh you know the lugansk oblast is speaking to you know the officials in lugansk as well both of these visits by putin in the last week have been completely unofficial unannounced just him and his i guess security probably arrived by her um helicopter in fact uh you know given that the recent military leaks have shown you know the leaks in the u.s that came out you know it was all that whistleblower drama related they have shown that the russians the russian i guess fsb gru were heavily infiltrated by cia foreign spies even Mossad or you know other agencies and so i think putin is very much aware that if he is going to make these unannounced visits to the ukraine to the war zone he does need to kind of plan them by himself who was close close kind of people in his uh, federal security forces not really even 
relaying that to the military. It really does need to be top secret material because you know, uh, you know, there's a high chance the Ukrainians won't keep a certain level of truce, and they will in fact try to take him out there. I think the um, so it's very commendable that he actually visited these areas. Um, I'm sure you can say the same, Conrad, especially given that. He's essentially doing this after Zelensky has shown his face in almost every single town that the Ukrainians have held at one point on the, you know, the border of conflict. So Zelensky seemingly is not afraid. Uh, Putin is showing as well that he is in fact brave enough to appear in these, you know, contentious territories and uh, kind of uh, bolster the spirit of the troops. Oh, it's good, and this is, comes after, of course, we talked about in the last episode of World War Now, Vladimir Saldo, who explicitly called for. Odessa to be retaken, and it seems Putin, you know, rewarded him with a visit pretty pretty soon after that. So if that says anything about the future prospects of that, you know, there there is that. But it is to me unfortunate still that Putin is unable to make an appearance, make a big speech, get a huge rally going at the center of Donetsk. We of course know why, because that would be a delightful target for Ukrainian Nazi terror bombings, but. You know, we hope that within the next few months, the front line can be pushed back enough from the city where we could see something like that happen. We can see the people of Donetsk who have so steadfastly, you know, maintained and lived in their homes and sought for the vision of a Russian Donbass and, you know, maintained through that can actually, you know, have that satisfaction of celebrating that union with, with Russia that, you know, has happened, but that they can really, you know, have the president visit them just like he would visit any other part of the country. That's going to be, that's of course going to be a big day. We haven't seen it yet, which is definitely a, a morale victory for Ukraine. You know, they can, people wonder what keeps them going. Well, it's stuff like that. You know, I'm sure they have all sorts of metrics that they use, the, the terror that they've inflicted that, you know, has maintained that they see like, well, this is, you know, worth it to keep going. We, of course, do hear news about the offensive coming from Ukraine that, you know, they think they've said has been pushed back like a dozen times at this point, whether it's going to come towards Zaporozhye, down from Kherson, down towards Crimea. That's what they've all been saying, all sorts of different things. But Bakhmut is now, of course, under 85-plus percent control, 90 percent control of, of Wagner forces. The Ukrainians are, at this point, just really don't want to admit that it's basically over there. And with Putin's visit, he's you know made it pretty clear that, at the very least, if there's any kind of peace, we're getting the full territory of Kherson and Zaporozhye, you know, with it, which, again, I think Dmitry and I would say is nowhere near enough, but that's that's at least better than, you know, some of the other terrible options that may have been on the table. But as far as, you know, Putin's diplomacy as well, we saw, you know, we, we saw Li, Li uh, Fu, that visitor, the defense minister of China visiting, you know, the sanctioned one. He's been, you know, talking to Putin and... Lavrov more and China has, I'll talk about the Chinese um, France ambassador and what he talked about China's position on Crimea and the Donbass. But it seems that Crimea, that China has talked about an, a peace envoy to Ukraine and that certain forces are talking about taking that seriously. I'm wondering what you think that means. Like, what is that? What, what are the Chinese talking about? I think it's essentially our prediction is coming true that China's involvement earlier this year in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which China was silent on for a very long time, in fact, not recognizing Crimea, not recognizing Donbass or Lugansk, saying that we are standing on this neutral international position. And finally, China's actually becoming actively involved. We know we mentioned as well Turkey is not being involved, but in fact, the mediator has been Turkey for a very long time under Erdogan. Now, China, in fact, is taking this position as like this outsider who comes in and says, okay, guys, let's stop fighting. Let's kind of relate. 
uh, let's kind of re relate the situation to to one another. Let's let's make a peaceful mediation process. So, in fact, China's hosting all these uh, conferences with with the Russian side, kind of discussing things. Uh, I do think one of the main, at least this unofficial uh, recognition of Crimea by the Chinese uh, by the Chinese diplomat, where he kind of mentions off the cuff that hey, the 1991 borders of Ukraine are kind of illegitimate, and Crimea really does belong to Russia in some way. He doesn't. It's not an official statement, but at least. I think perhaps China is preparing that position to kind of out outwardly announce finally that it does recognize Crimea as a part of Russia on a on an international like high uh, international basis because if you recall Crimea separating from Ukraine and joining Russia was the main reason why all the international sanctions actually began scaling up at least since the Magnitsky Act sanctions you know, before 2014, 2014 and Crimea joining Russia was the main catalyst for all these sanctions. So China agreeing, so China going against those sanctions openly and saying that, hey, Crimea is a part of Russia will be a huge, a huge step in the right direction, at least for the Russian Chinese international community. Um, even, even the whole, I, I guess the whole identity of BRICS actually having their own position on these matters, as opposed to like pushing the the NATO EU line, I think it's a it's a huge step forward there. Naturally speaking, I think that's probably what they even discussed when Xi Jinping and some of his foreign ministers and uh, actually visited Moscow earlier a few weeks ago. I think that's probably what they discussed. It wasn't even necessarily military aid directly, but it was mostly I think diplomatic concessions that China could give Russia if Russia continues to promote this uh, these huge trade concessions. Uh, to the Chinese People's Republic, I think it was like, hey, you guys support us on the international scene here in terms of diplomacy at, in the United Nations, and we're going to support you, you know, in um, in terms of trade and continuously. That's the agreement here. There's Russia has no real need for military, at least, well, from what the mil from what the military industrial complex in Russia, its spokespersons are telling us, yeah, there was some misunderstanding, but at the moment, Russia is is vastly outproducing the EU and the US combined in terms of artillery, tanks, aircraft. So I'm not sure how true that is. I guess the only time will tell, but at the moment, it does seem like Russia is solving some of its weapon shortage problems. But frankly, yeah, that's... Uh that that's that's the Chinese position at the moment is just to kind of be this peacekeeper and possibly again possibly China will reinvest into the future rebuilding of Ukraine. That's also a uh, high potential. You know, who, who will kind of rebuild all these cities? But who will rebuild Bakhmut if not you know Chinese uh, cons construction workers? Right. That's that's something always that's there to consider. I think. Hey, we've seen some North Koreans pull up for various reasons. Maybe they they'd be there too, but. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the French ambassador, Chinese French ambassador. He basically openly said, well, China, Crimea is Russia. And then again, I think he's using the Crimea as Russia thing to really bolster the Taiwan as China thing. I think painting those two situations as somewhat analogous is actually beneficial to China because Crimea is not going back to Ukraine. Everyone just kind of understands that at this point. So for people to realize that, people to people realize that Crimea is back in the Russian world, Taiwan and the Chinese world may be less radical. But I mean, this may be... Uh, an exaggerated translation, but there's been uh, other words from foreign ministers and the ambassador himself, and he's talked about even addressing, mentioning Eastern European nations, saying that, well, if you're not going to, if you're going to recognize Taiwan as independent and not recognize it as part of China, why should we recognize you as independent from the Soviet Union? Because you know that's historically, for most of our existence, that's what you were part of. So they're they're going pretty hard on some of these some of these countries, saying that you know we're going to. We take Taiwan very seriously. It's one of our, it's our main, you know, foreign policy objective at this point. And it's very clear that China and Russia and is, 
China is enlisting Russia's help in that, making sure that they know that they're on their side and slow walking it, of course, as the Chinese always do, but making it clear that at the very least, these crazy people in the West need to recognize that Crimea is Russia and any far-fetched notions of taking it back need to be kind of put to the side. And while that's all been said publicly, I think behind the scenes it's been made pretty clear from the leaks and even just from statements made, not just in official letterhead, that you know, people like Millie and Blinken are not super confident in the ability to retake Crimea, to say the least. And speaking of, you know, I guess analogies within the U.S. and Russia, a very interesting story that came out regarding the U.S. conflict recently. So the press secretary of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, his name is Dmitry Peskov. You may have heard about him. He's been in his position for about 20 years now. So he's been on and off, like you could see him in all the media coverage. And Putin himself doesn't really readily give interviews, but Dmitry Peskov very much so represents Putin in this capacity. He is the, 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 the analogy would be he is the Jen Psaki of the Russian Federation. So if you remember that um, very interesting red-headed uh, Biden sp- spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov very much takes this position, but he is a high-level elite sort of politician in the Russian sphere. And what's the story that comes out of uh, Ukraine at the moment is that Prigozhin officially announces that Dmitry Peskov's son has in fact enlisted in Wagner months ago and has been participating in the Wagner artillery division. So we have a son of the Russian elite, a son of a very elite Russian politician, um, is his his eldest son is thirty four years old. His name is Nicholas Peskov. Uh, actively, it is and an interview came out with him too, and he's dressed in you know military garb, similar to what we saw from the you know the descendant of the Romanov dynasty, Gabriel the Russian, uh, late last year, where you know we had a member of the old Russian aristocracy actively participating on the Russian side. Yeah, uh, it's it's this weird thing where these Russian oligarchs, Russian political leaders who are incredibly rich and very, very well off. In fact, uh, their children are actively being sent or even sending themselves volunteering to actually appear on the front lines. It is somewhat British in its, uh, at least this, this weird aristocratic leaning. It's like Russia is trying to traditionally or culturally return to sending its aristocracy to the front lines, as it always has throughout its 1,000-year-old history, where Russian you know, Russian youths, uh, men in particular, were sent to to war to train as knights and to participate in cavalry charges and actually actively, you know, support the military of its of its country. And here, you know, this is someone made an analogy of Prince Harry serving in Afghanistan, and you know, his recent testimonials book and how Dmitry Peskov's son, you know, this elite Russian, the son of an elite Russian politician, is now actively in in Wagner. Uh, is Peskov is he kind of taking a line out of the British royal family? Well, I'm not sure, but. It is a very interesting story, and you know, Prigozhin says it's very commendable. He says, you know, uh, the, the young man is working completely normally. He's in the knee deep in mud. He's riding the hurricane. So th- that's Prigozhin's kind of analysis here. And yeah, it's it's a very interesting development. We are seeing a lot more famous, I guess, Russian celebrities, people involved in uh, Russian like, Russian everyday life. The last thirty years in Russia, getting actively involved in the military conflict, at least giving their participation, because everybody wants to say that they have somehow. I guess, contributed to the future victory of, uh, you know, the Russian side and the side of the Donbass, Lugansk. It's very much a moral and ethical, I guess, like, stance uh, in in Russia, at least. The war isn't viewed as some sort of fratricidal uh, conflict. It's viewed as a war of liberation against, if anything, just the forces of Satanism. It's a desatanization, denazification process. It's very much seen as this uh, very sacred and righteous conflict, at least in Russian society at the moment, in the in the vast majority of it. And in fact, uh, you know, the persecutions against orthodoxy have in fact only reinforced this position. So very interesting story there. I think it's worth speaking just about, about the fact that uh, 
as the conflict develops, we do see, of course, Prigozhin, some of these big politicians, do are, are coming into such prominence that there are, you know, some of the main journalists in Russia at the moment have already predicted that, look, people like Prigozhin will be running for office in the future in Russia. It's inevitable. Like, Kadyrov has already made his stance. Prigozhin now is kind of even overshadowing Kadyrov. We, people see people like Strelkov, which, which, have, which, you know, he has a gigantic Telegram channel. Just all these massive figures in terms of popularity are coming to the forefront in Russia. And not, um, some of the views don't, in fact, align. Like, Prigozhin is a very different person to Kadyrov, to Strelkov. Like, these huge personalities are very much uh, becoming influential. And the question arises, you know, who is uh, who will be Putin's successor in the end? I think that's always on you know, people's minds at the back. You know, Putin is getting quite old, turned 70 last year. So, in fact, um, yeah, there will, be, there will be more news regarding that in the future, I'm sure. And we'll be covering all of that for you. So, let's stay tuned. Uh, this conflict is still not over, and... Yeah, we're still following it very closely. Well, and I've got some updates on the persecutions in Ukraine, but Dimitri, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it Prigozhin who he traded? I don't know the number, but he traded several, if not tens of people, of Ukrainian POWs for, I believe, two priests on Pascha. Was that is that accurate? Yes, it was somewhere around that number. But the other thing uh, he traded, I, I believe it was close to 200 prisoners for a few priests. Uh, but, of, of course, Russian POWs were also involved. I think it was 106 Russian POWs and some priests for about 200 Ukrainian POWs. So the trade was uneven, but that's only because, again, the numbers the numbers don't lie. There are more Ukrainian prisoners with Russia than there are Russian prisoners with Ukraine. Why is that? Well, because Russia's actively winning the conflict, right? Uh, especially in Bakhmut, where these prisoners are being taken. So, And, and naturally, it's very commendable that Prigozhin, being not very practicing Orthodox Christian, not from what we've seen, personality-wise as well as statement-wise, uh, it's commendable that he's in fact supporting the church in this capacity. I think that's pretty awesome. But it, there is this, there was this initial story that came out right before Easter that Prigozhin was going to release Ukrainian POWs before, well, like, and not just release them, but release them for nothing, for just as an, as an act of, uh, you know, as just an act of clemency. And this would be completely wrong. I don't think there has there's been any war in history where POWs, while the war was still ongoing, would be released to the enemy side for free. Uh, essentially, POWs are meant to be held in, you know, relatively, like, prisoner-like manners until the war is over. And then, of course, there's a trade occurs and peace talks originate and they're sent back to their homeland. But while the war is actually ongoing, and I know the Russian side is not calling it a war, it's a special military operation of sorts, but... There's no reason to actually give away these POWs. I think the Azov story from Mariupol kind of showed that nothing good comes from just sending Ukrainian POWs back to Ukraine, back to their families. And I know that sounds callous and cruel, but in fact, this has never been a tradition in any country around the world, let alone an Orthodox country. This isn't a, a proper tactic. It's, it's just weird um, virtue signaling. Yeah, and as far as the discrepancies on the prisoner exchanges go, I mean, Russia, you know, they're fighting a demilitarization war. They explicitly chose not to close the Bakhmut cauldron because they wanted to break down the military as much as they could. So they wouldn't be giving up these numbers if they didn't know they could, you know, afford to do so for lack of a better expression. I think that's important. But leaving the military front and getting to the front of spiritual warfare, of course, we see the Lavra persecutions continuing. We've seen now Red Beret soldiers, which I believe are formerly worn by Ukrainian paratroopers. We are, we see them now storming the monastery, walking in. We see them with their guns out with, you know, magazine on magazine, you know, for who knows what. I'm not sure why they need that for the babushkas that are, you know, there to pray. But 
the gates were closed, the people that were there were completely barred, and communion had to be distributed through the bars of the gate. We saw the um, spoon was, you know, into the chalice, through the gate, you know, so they didn't spill it properly, and the people, you know, get their lips through the gate to try to get it as close as possible, which is, you know, this really is some some, some persecution, some, some, some Roman Empire, some Bolshevik-style stuff. So I think we need to be sure to pray for the monastery, be sure to pray for Metropolitan Pavel, who is still under house arrest, and pray for the believers there, who are now, of course, being really barred from even the mysteries, which we've seen churches being burned down. We've seen more and more churches being stormed. We, I think it was even two churches recently have been totally just scorched, burned to the ground by schismatic arsonists. So we, we have to keep this in our prayers because it is, it is ramping up. Yeah, and look, things are not necessarily going to get better. If not, if anything, things are going to actually worsen over time. We noticed that exactly a month ago, towards the end of March, Zelensky announced, and of course his parliament also announced that the Verkhovna Radas claimed that, look, we're going to be taking this monastery and actually confiscating all of the, you know, all of the buildings there and you know, securing all the icons for, you know, to, you know, secure them in museum-like conditions and all the relics. And that's not really taken place. So, uh, and notice how just the, the, the fight back, the, the fact that it, it appeared on, the story appeared on Tucker Carlson, the fact that the Ukrainian people actually stood up for the lava in these, uh, in the first two weeks of April. But now the story has kind of died down because people are watching TikTok, people are watching YouTube shorts, Instagram shorts, the attention span is very short. So now that the story has died down, suddenly we see these green berets, these Ukrainian Spetsnaz operatives, these SBU operatives actually entering the lava and causing mischief. Now that there's now that there's actually no lashback and the story's kind of old, it's not fresh anymore, similar to how these conflicts in Africa like it's interesting to follow the civil war for some time, but because it's so perpetual and it occurs for decades on end, people lose interest. And so this is what's happening here, in my opinion, is that while the story was a big deal and everyone was making a fuss over the persecution in early April and everyone was standing up and even like you had Protestant and Catholics and Pope, Pope Francis spoke out about it. But now the story is kind of dying down. And so you actually have the SBU, the actual demonic persecutors, enter into the lava and uh, begin their dirty work. And you have the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture announcing that, you know, they're going to isolate some of the relics and the icons need to be placed in special conditions. And in fact, this is a, a cultural center, not a, not a, not the home of the Theotokos, as the Orthodox tradition claims it to be one of the, uh, one of the four sort of uh, home sanctuaries of the Theotokos in the world. But it's a cultural center for Ukraine. It's not. It's not a holy place. It's not a place where you can come to, uh, you know, unite yourself to the Orthodox tradition, the, the, the thousands, the two thousand year old Orthodox tradition. It's not a sort of Mount Athos in Ukraine. It's in fact just a, a cultural site where you can do arts and crafts. So that's what the Ministry of Culture of Ukraine is claiming. Now. That's, of course, that's why we, we're going to continue covering the story, only because it will be losing coverage in the mainstream media. I think that's kind of inevitable, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that while they have escalated, they've brought out the guys in berets and the guns and everything because they're serious about kicking out the canonical church. They still don't want, they, they understand the optics of it. They don't want to create the obvious, you know, Christians around the world versus the government dialectic, which, you know, in the, in the Orthodox world has very much happened. The Antiochian Church, of course, I'm proud to be part of, has strongly stood in support of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the canonical church. They've issued even very recent statements, you know, supporting them across the, you know, across our entire patriarchate. So we, uh, we're glad to see that. Again, the only people supporting the schismatics is a very specific group of, of Greeks in the 
in the in the patri in the ecumenical patriarchate and the Alexandrian patriarchate and a few on Cyprus. That's that's really all we've got as far as support for. And again, in most of those places, the majority of the pious believers, even the believers overall, support Metropolitan and Free in the canonical church. So let's not forget that. But as far as I guess the only other thing I'll say before we bring some breaking news that I hope I was supposed to bring up at the beginning of the show, Metropolitan Saba, the future Metropolitan of the North American Archdiocese of the Antiochian Patriarchate, he has been in America now for a few weeks, and he has been meeting with other hierarchs and everything. And he, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, he met with, explicitly I believe, met with the uh, vicars of the patriarchal parishes of the Moscow Patriarchate in America, which is different from Rokor. It's the parishes that are directly under Patriarch Kirill and the Moscow Patriarchate that happen to be in America, headquartered at St. Nicholas Cathedral in Manhattan, which was the first Orthodox liturgy I ever attended back in 2017. But Metropolitan Saba met with the representatives of the MP the day before he ended up meeting with El Foros, the head of GoArch. So I think it's a bit of a bit of a statement, you know, saying where the priorities are, which I think is is good. I think the priorities are are looking okay if that is what if that's what he's making known. But Dimitri, do you want to break the the Erdogan news that we were supposed to say earlier? Yeah, so literally hours ago, merely hours ago, it has been announced that Erdogan has in fact been taken to hospital for an unknown condition. Some some claim it was a heart attack, others claim it was you know something even worse, perhaps a, a stroke of some sort. But Erdogan is in fact, at least at the moment, it's claimed that he's hospitalized. And Turkish politics are looming just less than two weeks away from here. Um, you know, they've been moved from June to May. And Erdogan being the runner-up, you know, the president... Uh, proper right now, but also just the, I guess the the dominant force in these elections being hospitalized and not being able to appear in media streams and in any features at least and if he's hospitalized for a serious illness at least now it's it's it froze it froze a wrench in the entire um in the entire election debacle in Turkey of course it has incredible implications not just for Turkish politics but also the politics surrounding the Black Sea the Mediterranean world politics in general Turkey has been and I mean we've emphasized this over many episodes in the past but Turkey is the the one actor which hasn't really participated in recent politics to such a degree to make any impactful change it's kind of held back and so erdogan leaving the scene like this if he is in fact leaving the scene will uh you know almost cause these uh, eschatological changes that we spoke about in terms of prophecy actually being pushed to the forefront i think it's incredibly scary uh but yes uh, that's that those are the breaking news we have no other information at the moment so it's just speculative and you know speculation sometimes is good but yeah we are breaking news to you here now yeah, like we said, like it could very much be real. We know that in Turkey, most of the media at this point is pro-Erdogan, kind of controlled and influenced by Erdogan a lot more than other countries, where the opposition media has even a louder voice than than, than the than the ruling autocrat. But uh, we're hearing this from Armenian sources, from the smaller opposition sources, were the first to report this, of course, that apparently his wife has been rushed to his side. There's rumors that Putin, of course, about a few hours before reporting this as well, was rushed to the was re rushed to the Kremlin, which some say it was because of the Erdogan situation. But I think we can safely say that if what really did happen, you know, if they really did hit him with the heart attack gun and he really does die, that Saint Paisios moment might be in full effect. And you know, anything can happen, of course, and we'll be we'll be right here watching it closely. But I just want to reiterate the words of Metropolitan Neophytos, who is of course, you know, reiterating the words and prophecies of Saint Paisios, saying, Erdogan will fall and after him, inexperienced people, pro-Westerners, Kemalists, 
will take power and they will create big problems. And remember, who's the united opposition representative leader to take on Erdogan? It's uh, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who is, you know, he's never been in government before. He's always been in the opposition for years. He is a Kemalist through and through. He's part of the original Ataturk, you know, Kemalist party. And he's really trying to get elected. The U.S. has thrown at all their support behind him. He's recently even said, you know, he said this, but I know it isn't really necessarily true, that they won't shift Turkey's policy on Ukraine. Of course, I'm sure that's something that once they've won the election will be up for review with their U.S. partners. But he's really throwing out all the stocks to not seem like a U.S. puppet so that he can get that support needed. And now, even with the earthquake and everything, Erdogan was still holding on in the polls, but now apparently apparently he's just going to die. So it's uh, it's big news. We're going to be covering the election and stuff with, with David and some more things soon, so stay posted for all of that. But yeah, unless you have any more observations on <laughs> Turkey and the future of, of everything there, uh, we can maybe talk about about some of these other little stories and some of the de-dollarization and stuff in the economy. But Turkey is, you know, when it comes to the stuff in Syria and the reproachments with Saudi Arabia and Iran, Turkey's always there in the background. They're 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 so relevant. They have such a huge population. They're part of NATO. They're a relevant military power. So, and again, the Black Sea is just is where it really starts to get interesting. So, it's as I've said before, this election is going to be quite consequential to say the least exactly turkey is, is the big balance holder in the middle east in terms of iran azerbaijan syria russia ukraine even perhaps even the balkans frankly given that turkey is a member of nato and turkey has its own long-standing century-old conflicts with greece and so if turkey was going to break down into some sort of civil strike or civil strife and like break down in terms of uh, you know country which I, I don't think i don't think that's where it's going turkey very much is kind of uh even though despite you look at the ethnicities making up turkey it may not appear mono-ethnic but it does have this very dominant turkish culture which is very nationalistic and i think that'll keep the country together despite any sort of leadership changes at the top but this political strife is really not good because it may push the country as you said into a more western uh into a more western sort of grouping here which will of course uh only um potentially extend the Ukrainian conflict in a, in a more negative fashion. There won't be any peace talks, there won't be any peace agreements, at least none that favor Russia. So, um, yeah, we'll be looking forward to the election covering of David. I think, yeah, some of these other small stories around the world are very peculiar, like, you know, Japan Japan buying above the oil price, allegedly, very similar to what we spoke about a few weeks ago with India using Russia's gray fleet and actually buying Russian crude oil above $60 a barrel. Uh, you know, above the agreed upon sanction price, India kind of going outside of its of its agreements that it signed on to and some of the guidelines that it's it adheres to, you know, internationally in order to appease the community. Uh, Japan apparently is also doing the same. So everyone's everyone's kind of looking out for themselves, right? Everyone's looking out for themselves first. They're saying that look, yeah, well, there are these claims by by NATO, by the EU and the US, you know, stating that you have to follow these agreements in order to keep big bad russia at bay in order to keep them you know uh constrained and sanctioned but these countries need to worry about their own affairs first and foremost you can't care about your family if you yourself are not taken care of first so people need to in a way like they need to i mean these countries in particular they need to care for their own sovereignties and national economies before they make some sort of international obligations i think they're finally realizing that especially following how china's acting and uh yeah that story is from, from japan is very interesting um if you have anything to comment on that yeah well i mean despite you know 
U.S. kneeling on Japan's neck to get them to be like one of they are. They have been one of the staunchest sanctioners of 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 of, of Russia because you know the, Japan is occupied territory. There's you know thousands of U.S. troops on the island, so they kind of do what they're told, just like South Korea. But you know, in the first two months of 2023, Japan bought 748,000 barrels of Russian oil for approximately seventy dollars a barrel. So that might not be the price Russia wants to sell it at, but it's $10 over the price cap that's been agreed on by all the other G7 countries. So it's very clear that Japan's got a need that needs to be filled and they can't, they just simply can't go along with the silly demands that, you know, this, this conflict has, has, has forced on, you know, all the Western countries that, you know, the U S and the UK have, have really made everybody else pay for. But yeah, no India, of course they have their shadow fleet. They've got their, the other countries, I think, are finally starting to realize the ridiculousness of this. But the countries that never bought into it, the de-dollarization stuff is going crazy. I think as of today that we're recording this, the yuan is now the most used currency for China in their cross-border transactions. They use it more than they use the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar has fallen fast out of use. They believe that they're giving Saudi Arabia just gold for their oil. African countries, even European countries, South American countries are trading in their local currencies, yuan, rubles, rupees, you know, it's things are things are shifting fast. And I think, I mean, just remember, like we went to, we overthrew Gaddafi and killed Saddam and tried to kill Assad for all these same types of things for trying to get off the dollar, for trying to be buying their energy resources with non-dollars, for establishing gold-backed currencies. Well, now there's like 50 countries doing it at once. I guess finally got too much for the CIA and they can't, they can't just overthrow every country around the world. So, you know, things are definitely have changed. The unipolar moment is definitely over. We may not be fully into the realized multipolar world yet, but it's, it's definitely not the way it was. And I, I doubt it's ever going back. But I think one of those, <laughs> those little pieces of news, we see, I believe it was Spear Bank, which is the biggest bank in Russia, have announced that they're starting a chat GPT alternative called GigaChat, I guess, after everyone's beloved GigaChad. So this is, this is interesting. We know these, the whole chat GPT thing has been all the, all the, all the, all the news recently. Uh, that and I guess Tucker Carlson getting fired, if we need to mention that a little bit. But I'm wondering your thoughts on GigaChat. I think it coincides, interestingly enough, with Russian inflation falling in the month of March from 11% where it was, you know, since at least the beginning of the war. Inflation was even higher. It was 18% at the beginning of the military operation. It fell down to 11 towards the end of the year. And we thought, you know, and not just us, but most economists thought the inflation in Russia would stay at a certain above 10% for the next year. But in fact, it's fallen rapidly as the oil prices have gone up to 3.5% in last month in March. And so... Now that this, it's, it's full and suddenly Spear Bank have announced that, hey, and th- these things may not be related, but uh, these chat, the G- GPT developments, like GigaChat here, they cost, uh, they in fact cost billions of dollars. The actual hardware required to run one of these AIs, medium-sized companies do not have do not have the finances to actually develop an AI of this sort. It does cost, um, we're talking about, we're talking about billions of American dollars in terms of funding. So medium-sized companies cannot fund them. You'd need to be a large company like a bank or a Microsoft or Sberbank, for example, a, the, probably the largest bank in Russia at the moment. 
So, and of course, these AIs have uh, like high use. Essentially, they they essentially reduce the need for employment. They, you know, you have you have actively these AIs can actively do various processes internally as well as on the customer support side for you, and they do ease ease the I guess toil of these companies greatly. Um, of course, it has negative implications for the employment of you know Russians to work as bear bank, but uh, you know that's neither here nor there at the moment. Uh, you know. That's kind of like a huge development in Russia. And, you know, we're seeing this across the board. In Microsoft, Russians are developing the area AI. I know China most likely is as well on various fronts, but this will take maybe a couple of years. And OpenAI being under a liberal, libtard agenda algorithm is, you know, kind of makes it somewhat obsolete, you know, not really usable. Um, there's a potential that, you know, yeah, it's it's actually collecting data as well. So OpenAI, not very safe. And Elon Musk himself said that, you know, it hasn't really... Uh, hasn't really catered to its particular principles that it initially was founded on. So that's not very positive development. But speaking of like liberal left-wing, right-wing politics, at least in America, in the media sphere, Tucker Carlson's uh, firing, I think like it's been probably the craziest story of the week in terms of domestic American politics. This guy has been on the forefront of American journalism for the past at least decade. So, I mean, Conrad, you're probably more familiar with Tucker than I am. Like, even though we've both watched him for years, but, you know, you being an American, it's, yeah, just what kind of impact does this have, I suppose, on the current situation? I mean, you know, it's big. I mean, the people that I know for watching any TV, they were only watching Tucker. And now that that's gone, I mean, there's really no reason to ever have any of these cable news shows on ever. But a lot of narratives were emerging when it first happened. There was the whole, you know, anti-Semitism supposed thing by some lady that I guess had never actually met Tucker, some Jewish lady. We saw the rumor that it was about the Dominion lawsuit, which had happened. I guess Fox was maybe going to pay out $700 million to Dominion over some of this stuff. But I think the most compelling one was ultimately it seems that they're going to try to just shut him up through the election cycle, I guess. That his contract, they're going to keep paying him, but just not have him on. TV and he just won't be able to comment, which I don't know how that works. I don't know if that's really enforceable. Like, why wouldn't he be able to just have a podcast where he talks about the news? But maybe his contract really is that detailed. I guess when you have make $1.6 million a month, that's the kind of thing that you can get roped into. But again, look, I like Tucker. He's made some great, some great content. You know, he, even though he's Episcopalian, he recently trashed on Episcopalianism at a speech at the Heritage Foundation. So, you know, there's also a rumor that Rupert Murdoch didn't like how religious he was getting, and apparently his fiance started talking about how Tucker's like a prophet and started pulling out the Bible at dinner, and so then he thus broke off his engagement to this woman and then fired Tucker. So, you know, a spiteful 90-plus-year-old man still, you know, chasing women and being vindictive. That kind of makes sense for a media mogul, but I think there's all sorts of a myriad of reasons that probably went on behind the scenes. Many people are surprised he's been on TV this long, considering, I'd say, ever since he called out Israel for their immigration hypocrisy, you know, where Jewish groups like the ADL push for mass replacement of migration to the U.S. while maintaining that Israel must remain an ethnostate. The fact that he actually did that show and maintained his show on the air was, was shocking to me. So him getting removed isn't surprising. It's just when it happened was like, oh, wow, that was sudden. I think apparently he only heard about it 10 minutes before it was publicly announced, so... That's big. Of course, there's also the obvious take that Tucker's father is an extreme intelligent spook, you know, high-level operative and making CIA propaganda, so it's important to keep that in mind. But regardless, uh, you know, the America First agenda definitely did lose some speed as far as it's, it's having a powerful mouthpiece goes, to say the least. 
there's also a an, a non-zero chance that Tucker Carlson may in fact uh, be you know kind of freeing himself from these contracts in order to you know I, of course this is again speculative very speculative but could be running for the U.S. presidency in 2024. Now I'm not sure how realistic this is, but Tucker really isn't a vice president type figure. I, I don't think somebody like DeSantis or Trump would pick up Tucker as a vice president. I think he's more of a front man. He's very much a, a personality, very opinionated. Uh, the people trust him. The people on the left listen to him. The people on the right adore him. Uh, he's very much a, a person who you know caters to the audience as well as has his own opinions, which he doesn't really bounce off of. And he's not really a libertarian either. He does have certain conservative views, which could be seen as you know based and somewhat right right wing uh in terms of uh, being a little bit too extreme for leftists to digest i i think there's a non-zero chance that we may see tucker involved in some capacity in the 2024 race and not just in the media sphere maybe perhaps on the cabinet of a future you know uh, president from the republicans maybe some involvement there i think that's uh, something to look out for well we're gonna be watching that closely of course and he you know maybe he some people say oh he's gonna sign like a rumble exclusive contract you know well that would be cool but uh you know i'm sure there's going to be some contract silencing negotiations and nonsense going on with the with the whole fox thing but yeah i don't know i mean my big worry about this episode is that uh erdogan's somehow going to die before this gets released and maybe that doesn't happen but if he does die you got our take on what's going to happen you know possible saint paisios moment imminent so keep that in mind and Dimitri, unless you have anything you want to say, wrapping this all together, Ukraine, Sudan, Serbska, unless you have anything you want to say about some of those things, we can probably start doing the plugs. Yeah, no, I think it's been a pretty intense episode. There's obviously a lot going on and a lot of things are still pending. We're still waiting, finally trying to find out exactly how some of these conflicts and uh, you know diplomatic transactions are going to resolve themselves. So in a way, we are very much watching and you guys, our listeners, some of the supporters, you, uh, you know, um, ladies and gentlemen, of course, actually observing with us along on, on this journey, we will be giving you guys the utmost, you know, accurate takes, at least at the moment, what's available to us throughout the coming weeks. So definitely stay tuned. And the next big episode, I, th- I believe, coming up, maybe not in the next week, but definitely in the next two weeks, we'll be discussing the Turkish elections in early May. This will be, of course, a breaking blockbuster episode because we've been discussing the Turkish elections and their implication on relations for a while now on like international relations as a whole so that's definitely looking forward to that we'll be working alongside david in order to produce probably some of the best turkish local content for you so stay tuned yeah and as far as i guess the last thing i'll say we'll be watching serbska bosnia about you know maybe that country will get a whole lot smaller in the next few months we're watching for there may be uh Dodik, I believe, mentioned possibly setting up barricades and checkpoints, you know, no longer recognizing non-Serbska residents and passports and whatnot. So that's that's real hard, hard break stuff. So we're going to be watching that. We're going to be watching Erdogan's health if he's not already dead by the time you're listening to this. So be sure to keep your ear to the ground. Well, as far as keeping up with that, Telegram is the best place probably to keep up with our the rapidest news on all the most recent and up-to-date news on all of that. So World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E, at the end of World War Now on Telegram, you'll find us there. Twitter, World War Now, underscore. That's where we, we're, we're posting there all the time. Followers growing very fast. I'm Gnomrad on Twitter, Conrad Gnomrad. Dimitri is O-Canonist, the Orthodox Canonist. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's our home base. That's where everything happens we've got some articles coming we've obviously that's for ether hour our premium show that if you want to support us financially you don't just help us out for doing all these episodes you also get access to all the episodes of our fantastic show ether hour 
Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. We post clips there. We have a recent great clip, actually, 19 minutes of our episode about GV, Motorola, Strelkov, and the Donbass War with some clips over it. Thank you very much to some anonymous people that I won't name, but they know who they are. They help us on those clips a lot, so we really appreciate it. It's a great one. If you don't know much about that, GSP from the War Report, he endorsed it. He said it was great, and I love GSP, so thank you for that. I think it we'll, we'll maybe have that one linked. But it's it's a great introduction to the whole Donbass War thing, if you haven't already seen it. Yeah, I think thank you again for the support, and we hope you have the next 40 days are very smooth for you guys. And if you're going to listen to some of the future episodes, of course, we appreciate it. We'd love to hear any feedback, any comments. And besides that, just have a happy Easter if you're an Orthodox Christian and you're still celebrating, as you should be, leading up to Ascension and Pentecost in a few weeks' time. So definitely... Um, you know, keep up to you know carry that spirit on as long as you can. That spirit from Pascha. Christ is risen. <laughs>